Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 12. Back to the lines, the, the first thing that he says after Dante tells him to introduce himself, if I thought my, wor- my reply were meant for one who whoever could return into the world, this flame would stir no more. And yet, since none, if what I hear is true, ever return to life from this abyss, then without fear of facing infamy, I answer you. Those words in, in the original Italian were, those were the lines that T.S. Eliot used as the introductory uh, piece to the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock as a little hint to those who wanted to take the hint about something that's going on in the Prufrock story. So let's just imagine for, for the next few minutes that Prufrock is a modern 20th century version of the essential dilemma of Guido. The essential dilemma of Guido is that it was a conversion that turned out not to be a conversion. Uh, Guido had already, Guido says, uh, when it was time to lower sails and gather in the ropes, what what once had been my joy was now dejection. And the thing about Prufrock is that he has reached that point in his life. And uh, he, has, he tries to move beyond it and gets stuck someplace in there too, fails that conversion. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about it as we go through, but I want to just, I'm not going to review the whole poem because we don't have time for that. Um, but the first lines of Prufrock, after that little quote from Dante, are these. By the way, Prufrock uh, is also proof rock, P-R-O-O-F, rock, uh, written uh, in the emotional aftermath of World War I. Uh, well, for it's been a long time. It's we don't, and a lot of us weren't around. Uh, World War One leveled a lot more than just a lot of the cities. Uh, it leveled a lot in terms of what what people had thought uh, was sustainable in Western culture. It had a devastating effect. Uh, and Prufrock uh, is someone who is, uh, if not caught between a rock and a hard place, caught between a proof and a rock. And uh, he's stuck. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. One of the most stunning similes in all of English literature. First of all, let's th- back to the first line. Let us. I know we're here for Dante, but again, Eliot is the supreme commentator on Dante, I think. Let us go then, you and I. Who is this you and I? 
it seems, and it could be, it seems that it's the that it's proof rock and the reader. It is also, I think, proof rock and proof rock. I think there is in this story of proof rock a internal dialogue going on. And proof rock may represent uh, a, an artistic version of those two contending impulses suddenly one coming to the realization that they're in me that there is in me these two and then they begin to talk it over you see so this this is not going to be the tyrant's heart where it breaks out it doesn't break out a proof rock but it also doesn't break open it begins to it begins an inner dialogue a rambling inner dialogue with this inner tension let us go then you and i when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table proof rock has become conscious of this inner tension but the price of it is that he's etherized he's conscious of it but he is etherized he's anesthetized uh, ether has two interesting implications and I'm absolutely sure Eliot meant them both one is the old uh, early notion of the ether the the you know what the space is ether so in some ways proof rock is a spacey guy it's it's etherized his whole consciousness has become etherized in that sense of floating around but notice it says ether like a patient etherized upon a table and the table is the earth but he's etherized walking around on it. He's etherized upon the t table. But also etherized in the sense of, of uh, it's, it uh, anesthetizes. It puts us to sleep and anesthetizes us. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels, and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to, le to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit. The overwhelming question is the question of conversion. By the way, I think uh, you, may, you may know about Eliot's own life. Eliot experienced a conversion after a uh, number of years after he wrote Proof Rock. Uh, but in the in the mysterious way in which uh, great artists uh, uh, somehow in their souls already anticipate the whole unfolding, I think the Proof Rock cannot be really understood without reading the Four Quartets. When you read the Four Quartets and you understand where that finally came to, then Proof Rock is understanding. He is between a proof and a rock. He is in that place, in that liminal state, 
where he knows a conversion is called for and he cannot experience it. Guido says he repented and confessed and became a friar. Uh, but it wasn't long before he returned to his former ways of being a strategist. Only this time his strategizing be had a little religious spin on it. He was strategizing on behalf of the Pope. Uh, so that things, it, it just was a little patina that covered the real thing. Prufrock is not trying to become a friar, but trying to become conscious. And he's already become conscious, although anesthetized, uh, in order to do so. Uh, he's become conscious of this, this dialogue inside him. But where Guido's attempt to become a friar failed, and he became uh, a papal fox. Prufrock's attempt to become conscious fails, and he becomes a psychological aesthete. He begins to explore the little nuances of the psychological world, and he gets lost in the aesthetic delicacy of that. And he goes on about it, and it's it's like a psychological version of repenting and confessing. It, 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 it doesn't conclude in a conversion. Just to give a sense of this, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create and time for all the works and days of hands to lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time for yet a hundred indecisions. And for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. See the little aesthetic quality there? Before the taking of a toast and tea. And then the next lines are this. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare, time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. Turn back. Conversion means to turn around. Turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say how his hair is growing thin, my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest but asserted by a simple pin. They will say how his arms and legs are thin, do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. The real clincher in Prufrock and Guido is that Guido says, My deeds were not those of a lion, but those of the fox, the wilds and secret ways. I knew them all. The Italian is io sepe tutte. I knew them all. The crafty ways, the subtle ways. That's the best way, I think, to get this. The subtle ways of what, really, finally, self-deception. The subtle ways, I knew them all. And there is in Guido, when he says that, the sense of being forlorn and also being proud. Here's what Prufrock says. For I have known them all already, known them all. I think that is absolute clear and conscious uh, 
echo of Dante. I have known them all, already known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, and afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music of a farther room. So how should I presume? I have known the eyes already, known them all. The eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt-ends of my days and ways? And how should I presume? There's an interesting little parallel. You know, up, up above he talked about... Uh, my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest but asserted by a simple pin. And now he is formulated and wriggling, pinned and wiggling, wriggling on the wall, you see, trying to spit out all the butt ends of his days and ways. It's a conversion that doesn't become a conversion. He knows, but he gets lost in the little aesthetic, psychological stream of consciousness I have known I have known the arms already. Guido was a man of arms. Proof right. I have known the arms already, known them all. Arms that are braceleted and white and bare. Guido's a proof rock's a man of arms too. But in the lamplight downed with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress, arms that lie along the table or wrap about a shawl? And should I then presume, and how should I begin? I move. How should I begin? It's not working. The conversion that does not become a conversion. A couple more, I think, references, and then we'll leave it at that. Uh, when, when Guido died, Francis shows up and the black cherub bin, and they have this and it's, of course, the black cherubim who takes the day and gives the speech. Um, the black demon who stands there ready to take the soul to hell. Uh, and what he says is, one can't absolve a man who's not repented and no one can repent and will at once. Prufrock is, I think, a case of somebody who is repenting and willing at the same time. <laughs> Which, by the way, is not an alien, not altogether unusual 20th century uh, combination of things. We are very confessional people. At the drop of a hat, we will we will write a confessional autobiography, spilling the beans, you know, <laughs> but never undergoing a conversion. No, I shouldn't say never, but one can spill the beans all day long and not undergo a conversion, repenting and willing at the same time. So that's uh, a proof rock, too, and this is what it gets him. He says, And the afternoon, the evening, sleeps so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers. This is, again, that aesthetic quality. I, w I wonder if Eliot had read Kierkegaard shortly before he wrote this. Kierkegaard has a thing about the, the aesthetic. And the afternoon, the evening, sleeps so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers. This word malingers is very interesting. It malingers. 
the word malingers means one who feigns an illness in order to escape a deed, or it malingers. And then he goes on to say, I'll go back and read it. And the afternoon, the evening, sleeps so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor, there beside you and me. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, the, the proper little, you see, social ritual, should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept, see, he too, he too became a friar, though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, John the Baptist, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. <laughs> There's the black chariot room. And in short, I was afraid. And would it have been worth it after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea? He keeps coming back to the tea ceremony. Would it, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all, if one settling a pillow by her head should say, that is not what I meant at all, that is not it at all. Well, there's more to, perhaps I'll just leave Prufrock with one other reference. Guido is a false counselor, an evil counselor. So is Prufrock in the sense that I think Eliot all of Eliot's poems are autobiographical, although none of, very few of them seem to be. I think Eliot in Prufrock is intensely aware of a, of a responsibility to speak the prophetic voice. And at the moment he's writing Prufrock, is also aware of his inability to do so. He knows it has to happen. He knows that, that all that's gone before is now bankrupt, but he simply has, is not there yet. When he gets to the four quartets, he'll speak it. But uh, at this point, he's, he writes the poem of one who is, who is the evil counselor in a way. Prufrog is not the evil counselor so much as he is the inept counselor, the one who really has no, doesn't, can't speak it yet. So he says, no, I'm not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. That's interesting he chooses Prince Hamlet because one way of describing 20th century Western experience is that right after World War I, we all became Hamlet. The great question that Hamlet faced, Hamlet knew that to avenge the wrongful death of his father would simply start the cycle one more time. 
and World War I was the moment when we realized that that cycle of history, we went ahead and repeated it again anyway, but realized that that cycle of history was essentially bankrupt, and that was Hamlet's experience. So it's interesting he chooses Hamlet because we are all Hamlets after World War I. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, an evil counselor, advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, see, politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times, indeed, almost ridiculous, almost at times, the fool. Fool's capitalized. Uh, he says, start a scene or two, advise the prince. Guido had called Pope Boniface VIII the prince of the new Pharisees. Well, uh, we don't have time today to go into detailed parallel between these two, but two, two stories of the recognition that the time has come for a conversion, for a transformation, uh, and a move into that transformative place, taking on some of those things, taking on the cord, taking on some consciousness, in Prufrock's case, of the inner tension, uh, but it not it coming to nothing. Uh, Prufrock, in a way, is his... Prufrock abandons the sociodrama better than Guido does. Guido uh, takes on the chord, but pretty soon he's drawn back into the sociodrama. Prufrock is not drawn back into the sociodrama, but in abandoning the sociodrama, he also abandons the otherness. There's no sense of otherness in this stream of consciousness of his. He's etherized. He's just floating around, observing it, including himself. In Canto 28, uh, we move uh, into the, the ninth pouch of the eighth circle, and these are the polarizers, or the sowers of discord. And... Um, Dante has great uh, contempt for these souls. And I think we can understand them uh, as, a, as a carry-on from what we've just been talking about uh, with, with Guido and, and Prufrock. He describes, first of all, a landscape of mutilated bodies, a battlefield landscape, many, many battlefield landscapes with all these torn bodies all over the place. Uh, the result of the sowers of discord. War being a failure to deal creatively with conflict. Uh, instead of thinking of um, war as conflict and peace as the absence of conflict, I think it's helpful to think of war as the failure to deal creatively with conflict. Uh, the turning of the tension away from attention back to contention. 
and that is a an entropic turn, an anti-evolutionary turn, to turn the tension away from attention back into contention. And so here's the the battle field strewn with bodies. One way, uh, also, just on this issue of war, we might think of of uh, we might think of war in ju- in contrast to the cross as two ways of dealing with the antinomies of life. Uh, and we might even be so bold as to say that uh, if we cannot shoulder the cross, we will eventually shoulder the weapon. Dante's understanding of the essential role of the church and the empire is that these are the two institutions, sacred and secular, whose legitimate role is is to uh, bring all of humanity into communion. His legitimate role is to bring all of humanity into a family. And so those who who, uh, who are the sowers of discord uh, destroy the legitimate role of those two institutions. Now, I think the best way to understand what he's doing here, because so much of it, he's gonna, these are gruesome instances of bodies that have, been, that have been severed or split or limbs and heads and so on lopped off and mutilated. I think the, where Dante probably goes to get that image is St. Paul's image of the body of Christ. So if we go there, we might get an insight into sowers of discord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm just going to read here and there. Paul says this, There is a variety of gifts, but always the same Spirit. There are all sorts of services to be done, but always to the same Lord, working in all sorts of different ways in different people. It is the same God who is working in all of them. Just as a human body, though it is made up of many parts is a single unit because all these parts, though many, make one body, so it is with Christ. Nor is the body to be identified with any, with any one of its many parts. Instead of that, God put all the separate parts into the body on purpose. If all the parts were the same, how could it be a body? As it is, the parts are many and the body is one. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you, nor can the head say to the feet, I do not need you. The reason I think it's helpful to think of St. Paul's distinction here, St. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. The point of his letter is less that we are one. The point of his letter is that we are many in the context of that oneness. He is writing to them because they're sense of oneness is beginning to shrink to the point of becoming sectarian, to the point of becoming a a little group that uh, considers itself specially ordained. And he's saying to them, yes, he's saying, yes, we are one. We are all one. But you must understand when you get into this, get this idea into your head that we are all one, that's a very dangerous idea. 
if if you if if the idea that we are all one gets into the head of somebody who does not uh, understand it at a deeper level, it can become uh, tyrannous. We are all one, and the oneness consens- consists of our multi- of the multiplicity, of the diversity. That's what the oneness consists of. So that the so that the sowers of discord, I think, can be seen. To be not nobody goes out to sow discord as a motive. What is the motive behind the sowers of discord? The motive is to impose a unity. And those who are sowing discord are those who set out to impose a unity, but who have lost touch with this thing that Paul's talking about, which is this other much more random and. difficult in a way kind of unity within multiplicity the issue is not union the issue is communion communion so the sowers of discord are those who to use a metaphor break up the family in order to join the party that is to say the the party the political party that is the pure ones, the pure ones, the elect ones, uh, the Pharisees. The Pharisees means the pure ones. Uh, the Cathars. The Cathars means the pure ones. Uh, the heresy that is this is the one true in group, and everybody else is in the out group. And they, so it is that need to impose a unity on a special group that causes the discord. A little instance that I know of uh, secondhand um, of someone who uh, had an advanced degree in something called conflict resolution. Uh, and I guess on the theory that on the theory, uh, the uh, Bob Dylan theory, that uh, if you if you if you got a knife, you got to find something to cut. Um, this 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 person, who had an advanced degree in conflict resolution, uh, was was a constant sower of discord. Uh, uh, <laughs> you see. So <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, so the first one we see here, the first of these sinners is um, is Muhammad. Now, Dante understood uh, Dante is a product of the Crusading ages, and he understands uh, Muhammad as the great schismatic. Anyway, when he sees before he finds out who it is, he says Dante says, "One whom I saw ripped." right from his chin to where we fart. That's a nice little touch. Uh, uh, part of what goes on in these, as we've learned earlier, these cantos is that the language becomes uh, it becomes earthier uh, in places. So uh, Muhammad is ripped right from the neck all the way down to the, to the crotch. His bowels hung between his legs. One saw his vitals and the miserable sack 
that makes of what we swallow excrement. While I was all intent on watching him, he looked at me, and with his hands he spread his chest and said, See how I split myself. Now, I think there, in, in this canto there are a number of places where we can steal insights. By that I mean uh, there are insights that, that the imagery uh, makes available to us, uh, but they are very li- unlikely to have been ones that Dante uh, implanted there. But one of the ones that we can, that we can pilfer, in a way, comes from this idea of the sower of discord being the one who opens his chest as though he's, as though he's displaying, uh, you know, his his ribbons and medals, opens his chest and says, "Look at how I split myself." What I think is available with that image is the idea. I, I, I shouldn't say the idea, the the strange reality that people who are split, seriously split have an enormous power over others. There are, there are two uh, kinds of people that have an enormous power. Those who are profoundly split and those who have come to some profound uh, integration of that tension. Those who are profoundly split are people like Hitler and Jim Jones and Charles Manson and, you know, you name it. They have an enormous power over people. And their power stems from their somehow displaying that split. Ahab, by the way, too, you know, we're getting ready for... Moby Dick. Ahab's a split character. He has an enormous power over the people on the Pequot. On the other hand, you have people like Jesus and Gandhi and, you know, fill in the blank, who had an enormous power over people. I should say maybe the way to distinguish partly is to say they have one has a power over and one has a power on or somehow, but they can affect people. But both have to do with this tension. But the sowers of discord are the ones who are split and somehow reveal that split and cause others to be split. And, 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 and it, it goes back to this idea of the tyrant's heart breaking open, or breaking out, I should say. The tyrant's heart breaking out. And suddenly that conflict is out into the world instead of breaking open, breaking in. Well, he goes on to uh, explain. His, I mean, he, he's, he's maimed from the, ne- from the chin down, and uh, his, his religious heir, Ali, who was his uh, son-in-law, is, is split. His whole face is split. So together they, they form a matched set, and the whole body is split. Um, and what happens is that there is a there's a demon there, a tormenting demon with a great sword, and these sinners are passing around, and, and they pass in front of the sword, and he cleaves them. However, they are he lops off a limb, or in, in Muhammad's case, cleaves his, the trunk of his 
his body, uh, or in Ollie's case, his cleaves his skull. And each sinner is in some way, the body is ripped apart. But as they walk around, it slowly heals, so then they just subject themselves to the same cleaving. It just goes over and over and over and over. It's that repetitive breaking out of that discord. But there's another, a couple of things where I want to steal insights, that particularly steal it here. I don't think it's at all implanted, and that is Dante mentions at one place uh, a tra- uh, this uh, sinner is Malatestino, and he's, t- he's referred to by another sinner as that traitor who sees only with one eye. That seemed like a very subtle reference here to a way of a very subtle way of eliminating some of the texture. You know, St. Paul's letter, he's saying, it is, mu- it is the multiplicity you must accustom yourself to. Uh, if you, you, We are one, but you have to accommodate yourself to that multiplicity. And one of the subtle ways of, of, uh, of toning down the multiplicity is just to close one eye. Because then you get the whole thing, really, except you get what's lost is depth of field. Two more sinners just to touch on. One says, this sinner is named Curio. He, he gave Caesar the advice that Caesar should cross the Rubicon and then start the great civil war. So he is, uh, he sowed discord in that sense. And what he said to Caesar was, uh, he, he says, one who is prepared can only suffer harm if he delays. This is a, this is evil counselor, really. Uh, all these are evil counselors. There's a sword of discord, but they're all also, some of these are striking cases of evil, evil counselors. He says, now you have the upper hand, and you may not have it for long. You better move. You better do it now. Uh, and this is a very hard thing to resist, you see, because you think that your window of opportunity is going to slip. And then there's this uh, other character, Musca di Labertini, and uh, he's especially interesting character because he says, "There's his is he." By the way, he raises his fist. To Dante, except there are no fists there. His fists have been lopped off. They're just stumps. And he has been in, involved in uh, f- uh, clan feuding. And one of his clan members has been killed, and they have yet to avenge his death. And his advice was, what's done is at an end. That's what he told Dante. He said, I just told him what's done is at an end. I'm sure, because it's translated so much like that in the translations I've seen. I'm sure that was probably a uh, some kind of um, of uh, idiom in Italian. I'm confident that the best way to translate it, may I speak as a translator now, uh, that the best way to translate that for us is that what he said was, let's get it over with. Let's get it over with, meaning one of our clan's been murdered. Let's put an end to this. We're going to put an end to it. We're going to we're going to get a let's get over let's get it over with. Let's put an end to it. 
meaning let's go kill one of theirs. And Dante says, and brought death to your own kinsmen. Dante's little conclusion to that is that you brought death to your own kinsmen. Let's put an end to it here and now. Let's get even. The war to end all wars, the final solution, it's all of that nonsense that somehow if we do this, that will be it. And people who are divided, whose consciousness is divided, who live in a polarized cosmos, the one thing they cannot deal with is the pendulum because they're on it. They're part of it. And they say, this will end it. We'll end it right here. And Dante says, no, you... You don't understand. It's just going to come swinging back. You push it back over, it'll just come swinging back. It always does. The polar consciousness is a pendulum consciousness, except those who are engaged in the polar consciousness cannot think in those terms because it would undercut everything they're doing. It would undercut their motives completely. It's eventually going to swing back. This is one of the things that some of the sinners in hell are shocked by, you know, they spend their whole life pushing the pendulum over that way. You know, maybe they're over here pushing it leftward or over there pushing it rightward. They spend their whole life pushing the pendulum. And then, you know, they're in hell no time at all. And pretty soon here comes this guy along saying, it's now gone the other direction. And what do you think about your life now? How is that for a life? You want to spend your life pushing the pendulum one way or the other? And finally, Bertrand de Born, who's also one of the most striking characters, he advised uh, Prince Henry to, to uh, he, he, he sowed discord between Prince Henry and Henry II of England, and so he's punished for sowing discord among family members, and his punishment is that his head's lopped off. The body and the, the, body and the head are separated. You know, the, the symbol of the Enlightenment, certainly the symbol of, in, in the French, uh, you know, the, the French... Uh, uh, crowned uh, the goddess of reason, and then they rolled out the guillotine. Uh, so the the the, uh, the 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 ironic symbol of the Enlightenment is the uh, is the guillotine. And here's uh, Bertrand de Born holding his head by the hair out there, and Dante says uh, it carried by the hair its severed head, which swayed within its hand just like a lantern. And that head looked at us and said, Ah, me. Out of itself, it made itself a lamp. And they were two in one and one in two. Out of itself, it made itself a lamp. As Canto 29 starts, Virgil says to him, why are you staring so insistently? Why does your vision linger there below among the lost and mutilated shadows? And Dante says, In that hollow upon which just now I kept my eyes intent, I think a spirit born of my own blood laments the guilt which down below cost one so much. And Virgil says, I saw him below the little bridge 
his finger pointing at you threatening. Now Dante saw one of his own clansmen just caught him out of the corner of his eye. And Virgil says, I saw him under the bridge pointing at you, sneering at you. And then Dante says, it was his death by violence for which he still is not avenged by anyone who shares his shame that made him so disdainful now. And I suppose for this he left without a word to me and this has made me pity him the more. So the story is we just we just left uh, these uh, one of the characters that Dante saw was was somebody who uh, who was involved in the clan feud and who said well let's get it over and done with let's get it finished let's put an end to it and just started the pendulum process by trying to finish it once and for all he just pushed the pendulum one more time. And now Dante's faced with the same dilemma. It's the Hamlet dilemma. Here's a guy saying, avenge my death. You're a member of my clan. I was killed. And there was an unwritten law, even in Dante's time, of this you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth in terms of clan, uh, content, uh, clan warfare. An unavenged death. And Virgil says, uh, leave him there and let's go. And Dante turns around and walks away. And there it is. That's The alternative to that is just this polarized pendulum. Somebody has to just let it go. Walk away from it. Take the shame. <coughs> Uh, take the run the risk of being totally misunderstood, but somebody's got to walk away from it. Well, in the can in Canto twenty nine, we begin a, a a review of a of a, the next circle, and what we get in this canto are the alchemist, and this can the, they're being punished. Uh, by diseases, everybody, all the souls are diseased. It's like a former, the earlier canto was like a battlefield. This is like a, a great, huge hospital ward with all these diseased and leprous uh, and uh, scabbed uh, creatures moaning and groaning. Well, Dante really takes a look at two of them, but very briefly, really, Griffolino and Carpaccio. And uh, what we want to do, just this is a very brief conclusion, but what we want to do maybe is think of what does this mean for us? There were, of course, in Dante's time, alchemists, and they, uh, uh, Aquinas regarded alchemy as there was one branch which he regarded as legitimate, and Dante often follows Aquinas, so it's helpful to know this. Uh, there was an alchemy, the, the purpose of which was a kind of what we would think of as pre-chemistry, the purpose of which was to explore the mysteries of the natural order. And Aquinas regarded that form of alchemy as having a legitimate place in the search for knowledge. Uh, and part of that was the understanding of the processes of the transmutation of the metallic uh, order of things. So it was a legitimate quest. And then there was the other 
alchemy for Aquinas, which was just a lot of uh, charlatans running around with crackpot formulas uh, for uh, solving the problem of human existence. And so we can imagine that Dante's talking about the latter here. Uh, and then we would say, now what, how are we alchemists? What does it mean to be an alchemist in that sense? And uh, the simple one is the alchemist is somebody who, in the face of a problem, in the face of a, of a, of a, well, I, maybe an alchemist could be defined this way, an evil alchemist, someone who, when presented with the paradox, interprets it as a dilemma and uh, offers a formula for solving the dilemma. and still misses the paradoxical truth. So there is those who have formulas to solve the problem. The paradox becomes a problem and not a paradox, and, and the alchemist has a formula for solving it. And maybe in our time, the alchemist would be somebody who knows enough about, like the medieval alchemist knew enough about chemistry uh, to come up with little formulas that seemed attractive. Uh, in our time, many of us know just enough about human psychodynamics to come up with some little formula that seems uh, worth uh, experimenting in our, with in our lives. Uh, but if we're relying on those kind of little formulas, we might be akin, at least, to these alchemists that are being punished here. There's one little phrase at the very end of Canto 29 which uh, adds another little dimension to this, I think, and it's the last thing that uh, Capoccio says. I am the shade of that Capoccio whose alchemy could counterfeit fine metals, and you, if I correctly take your measure, recall how apt I was at aping nature. Uh, the thought is that Dante knew Capoccio uh, in, in his early uh, manhood. Counterfeit fine metals. Uh, the next centers in this circle are the counterfeiters of, of wealth. Uh, but he has a counterfeiter alchemist who is uh, making one believe, painting the lead uh, a golden color and calling it gold. He's counterfeiting the process. But he then says, recall how apt I was at aping nature, and these are the words in the Italian, to ape nature. Uh, and I think even in Dante's time, but certainly after, the, the, uh, after Darwin, aping nature has this sense of a regression, uh, the alchemist being one who apes nature. And I wonder if and this is a stolen insight, as is to say this. I don't think Dante necessarily implanted it here, but I wonder if aping nature in the alchemical context might not be someone who puts you in touch with the, with the emotional primal material. 
the prima materia. The alchemists always say start, they would always say start with the prima materia. And the false alchemists might be those who put us in touch with the prima materia and tell us that it's the philosopher's stone. Tell us that it's the aqua permanence, that that's the goal. Uh, and so, and those of us who spent a good portion of our lives in this etherized 20th century might be so thrilled at the discovery of the prima materia that we would be easily convinced that that's the thing itself, that that is not, that that's the goal of the process. Now you've gotten in touch with it. Now you're pounding the table. Now you're angry at your mother. Now you're, you see, or whatever it is. Now you've done it. See. That's as though that, and that's simply the prima materia. It's a perfectly okay first step, but if it's offered, if it's simply aping nature, if it's offered as a, uh, passed off as the goal of the process, uh, then, then, what gets perverted again is that conversion, the possible conversion of that into something significant. But one of the things that gets lost is that the tension becomes contention. Uh, the tension which is, which brings us into a paradoxical world, uh, which makes us conscious in that deeper sense, becomes contention. Because there is a part of us that would rat, that resists the paradoxical universe. And every time we get close to the paradoxical universe, it, it wants to have it one way or the other. And so it breaks out again into contention. So in some ways this both politically, in a secular way, and religiously, we're living in a world uh, that is calling on us to, um, to heal the tyrant's heart, to experience that brokenness in us, to break open, and not to, and not to spew out again that contention. One of the ways I wanted to approach today's material, or at least uh, a sizable bulk of it, is by having it uh, reflect on contemporary foolishness, our time's foolishness, and at the same time uh, to sound themes that are perennial themes uh, of us human beings. And that is a very difficult thing to do unless you happen to be a Dante or a Shakespeare or something. Uh, but we are looking over Dante's shoulder as we're trying to do it. But it, it, it will be a little bit difficult. And what I, uh, what I don't want to do is to turn this portion of his poem into a, into a biased commentary on 20th century existence. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Dante maintained throughout his poem uh, the prerogative of commenting on the foolishness of his time. In, in great uh, particular detail. So I think we can take a, a hint from him and try to have it reflect on some of our own foolishness. Uh, but that should not distract us from the fact that what's really going on in this poem is a depiction of a perennial human uh, dilemma. So I'm going to try to bring both of those in, and I'm, I may err on one side or the other. 
at first glance, Canto 30 appears to be a straightforward uh, commentary on three sins. The sins being uh, the, imperson the sinners, being the impersonators, the counterfeiters, and the falsifiers of words. Uh, I say on first glance, uh, the, uh, the fate of opinions based on first glance in Dante is not uh, promising because he clearly is after something deeper here. When, when, um, when Dante takes this close to the bottom of hell, we are, in the, we are at the end of the eighth circle, and there are only nine circles. The bottom of hell is the ninth. We're very close to the bottom of hell. That is to say, we're very close to the fundamental problem of human existence. And um, that close to the, the essential uh, issue, uh, that Dante would have a sinner like a counterfeiter, which seems to be petty and trivial, uh, you know when you see that, that he is, there's something else being implied. And it's quite clear to me that what was being implied in these three sinners, the impersonators, the, falsif the falsifiers of, of currency, or the, or the, or the uh, counterfeiters, and the falsifiers of words, is that what we witness in Canto 30 is the breakdown of community. And not simply the breakdown of community uh, on the part of one, one person or group of persons who have willed a break with community, but the destruction of the very fabric of community life, the, the destruction of the very stuff of community. These are the false faces and the false coinage and the false words uh, in that if we present false faces, and I think more Dante is more concerned with these latter two, really, than the impersonators. We'll talk about the impersonators. The, the counterfeiters and the falsifiers of words are the people who destroy the medium of exchange in human life. And symbolically, currency is the medium of exchange in the material realm. And all of us live in a material realm with each other, and we need to have an exchange with, you, with each other. And Dante is clearly not talking about financial things, uh, but he's talking about how we communicate in material terms. And, the and words are the medium of exchange at the spiritual level. And if these become perverted or subverted or distorted, then how, regardless of how much goodwill there is, how honestly we intend to create a community, we simply cannot. So the reason these sinners are so low in hell is because they have not only violated community themselves, but they have destroyed that which, with which others could form a community. So a grievous uh, sin indeed interesting examples of this, and I, I don't want to dwell on this, but in the last few weeks, and in the last few hours, for that matter, uh, distortions at the level of language. Uh, one of the things that happens with these distortions is that people, want, that when, when the medium of exchange is distorted, uh, people can um, delude themselves and others about what it is they're doing and what the consequences are. 
so that there are little catchphrases that seem to say something, but they don't. They seem to take responsibility, but they shift the blame. Uh, one of the things that has bothered me lately in our society is the inability of people to say I'm sorry in high places. And we saw, we've seen instances of it uh, seems like daily over the last few weeks. And some of them are strikingly parallel, where people have been accused of, of, uh, of let's say, for instance, adultery. And I'm not just talking about the most recent one, but several weeks ago, too. Adultery is a perfectly forgivable sin. But you have to be contrite first. And to have, and to have two people coming from two opposite ends of the political spectrum, coming from two, if, if you know what I'm talking about, both of whom, are on being accused of that, immediately turn around and blame the system for destroying character. It's obscene. Well, it's not... I don't mean to heap more abuse or kick somebody while they're down, but the point is that <coughs> language itself and phraseology itself uh, and impersonation in a way, so that what we're presented with is somebody taking responsibility, but if you look at what's being actually said, it's somebody shifting the blame. And the failure to arrive at a, at a contrite place in one's life is the recipe for hell. And as long as there is a language, a little subtle, nuanced language that allows us to pretend to ourselves and others that we have taken responsibility while at the same time shifting the blame, it's just a recipe for hell. So we, we've had, we just had some examples of that recently. Uh, I want to spend most of the time, Canto 30, looking at uh, one of the counterfeiters and one of the, uh, and one of the falsifiers of words because that's what Dante does. But just to mention impersonators, we might think of impersonators as being the, uh, the inevitable result of an unregenerate ego. That is to say that if I refuse to enter into the transformative uh, process, if I refuse to die and be reborn again, uh, I will inevitably have to closet more and more and more of the real life experience in order to maintain the facade. Uh, and then in the end, without having actually chosen it at a moment, I may find that I have become this elaborate impersonator. An impersonator, I'll remind you, is simply somebody who's pretending to be somebody other than he is. So it's not something that's foreign to us. We've all, we've all done it. We all know about it. Uh, it is when it becomes uh, a fundamental character trait that it leads to hell. When it becomes an unconscious, instinctive response to the world is when it cuts us off from... from from the living waters that will that will help us transform ourselves. Proofrock uh, says there will be time to to prepare a face to meet the faces that we meet. A time to murder and create. It's interesting that right after he says there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that we meet, he says there will be time to murder and create. That strikes me as a as a 
as a parody of death and rebirth. Uh, that if we that there will be death and rebirth, uh, but if we refuse to submit to it, then it becomes a parody of itself. So instead of time for death and rebirth, there is time to murder and create. As we are preparing faces to meet the faces that we meet. Well, I really want to spend time on Master Adam. I don't think it's uh, entirely coincidental that his name was Adam, uh, but he is a historical figure in Dante's time. He was a man who was uh, a, um, a, a kind of uh, uh, indulged, indulgent uh, man of Dante's youth who uh, was un would do any unscrupulous thing in order to uh, in order to be treated well by uh, by uh, those with power and wealth, and uh, he was eventually burned at the stake for counterfeiting the the uh, the Florentine florin, the gold coin of Florence. And that was when Dante was in his early 20s. Dante remembers it well, and so he brings him in here to, um, to personify the counterfeiters. And when Dante sees, he's, he has dropsy, he's bloated, and his punishment is this, is, this, uh, uh, is this thirst, tremendous thirst. And when he speaks to Dante, he says, I now long for one drop of water. The rivulets that fall into the Arno, down from the gr green hills of Castatino, with channels cool and moist, are constantly before me. I am racked by memory. The image of their flow parches me more than the disease that robs my face of flesh. Notice that his allusions are to flowing water. Uh, the Gospel of John Jesus makes the distinction between standing water or the water in a well or a cistern and living water, meaning flowing water. And what this is the first allusion to the fact that he is thirsty for living water. And now we're going to get, I think, to the heart of the, the deeper meaning of Dante's choice of, uh, of a counterfeiter and of, of, of Master Adam. That his name is Master Adam needs no comment. And then he explains his sin. I counterfeited the currency that bears the Baptist seal. Now, John the Baptist was the patron saint of Florence. And on the, on the Florentine coin, John the Baptist's image on one side and the lily on the other side. Uh, what Dante, I think, is getting at is that this thirst of Master Adam's, Master Adam is, as his namesake is, in need of the baptismal waters. And he has, because of his nature, misinterpreted it as, an, as a material need. And he has tried to get, he has tried to satisfy that need by cutting corners. So it is a spiritual thirst that is fundamentally at the heart of his thirst. But he says then, but could I see the miserable souls of Guido, Alessandro, and their brother I'd not give up the site for Fonte Branda. Fonte Branda is a fountain. The point he's making is that he would rather see his co-conspirators suffer in hell than have a drink of water, as much as he wants a drink of water. And this is the repeat of that theme that everybody in hell wants to be there. 
uh, he would rather stay there and inflict torture on others than to have his relieved. He's that caught up in it. But the, the, all this will be played out uh, towards the end of this canto, this, this uh, need for the baptismal water. Then Master Adam uh, introduces two sinners uh, who are there with him, and these are Potiphar, the wife of Potiphar, who um, in the story in Genesis when Joseph goes into Egypt, uh, he, po wife of Potiphar makes a pass at Joseph. He, he, uh, he turns her down, and so then she turns around and goes to the regent and says, you see, he ha uh, Joseph made a pass at me. Uh, so he, so Master Adam points out the, the wife of Potiphar, and then he also points out Sinon the Greek, who who uh, who lied to the Trojans about the Trojan horse, and uh, and he points them out and tells about their sins briefly, and then the poem says this, starting line one hundred, and one of them who seemed to take offense, perhaps at being named so squattedly, struck with his fist at Adam's rigid belly. It sounded as if it had been a drum and Master Adam struck him in the face. That begins this little uh, contest between Master Adam and Sinon the Greek. It begins with them exchanging blows and continues with them uh, spitting uh, uh, contemptuous charges against each other, terset by terset, halfway down uh, page 281. This is what community comes to if the medium of exchange is destroyed. And these are two destroyers of the medium of exchange in community. One has perverted the material medium of exchange, or the coinage, and one has perverted the language. And so they have to suffer the results of the absence of the stuff of community life. And the result is, the result is instead of uh, having an exchange, what, they ha what would have been an exchange comes to blows and insults. It is a picture of hell in which the name of the game is intimidation. And also, in a way, uh, it, it allows them to avoid the necessity. It allows them to avoid having second thoughts, I think, uh, having feeling some contrition. As long as there's another sinner there on whom they can, uh, you know, cast their contempt and their judgment, they can do it to each other, and neither one of them has to hear that voice of judgment in themselves. They can always address it to somebody else. But the key to it is the last of these, they go back and forth uh, six times, halfway down that page. And then uh, Sinon the Greek tells, says something to Adam about being thirsty, and Adam says, so as usual your mouth because of racking fever gapes for if I thirst, and if my humor bloats me, you have both dryness and a head that aches. Few words would be sufficient invitation to have you lick the mirror of Narcissus. 
uh, Mark Musa translates this, um, in, I think, more interesting way. He says it wouldn't take much to get you to lap the mirror of Narcissus dry. This is, I think, a supreme image of the fate of the unregenerate ego. We've already been told symbolically in the way that Dante handles these things that this thirst is fundamentally a spiritual thirst. That is a thirst for baptism. It is the, it is the thirst to be submerged in the baptismal waters of dying and re, death and rebirth. That is the nature of the thirst. But these are souls who have gone to the baptismal water and looked into it, and it was the mirror of Narcissus. They were that close, and it came to nothing. The water of life, the baptismal water, finally becomes the mirror of Narcissus, and they lap it dry. That's the, that's the power of this. They lap the mirror of Narcissus dry out of a thirst for baptismal water. You want to know the, 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 the horrendous fate of the ego, the unregenerate ego? It will lap the mirror of Narcissus dry out of thirst for the baptismal water. 